Hello and welcome to the Central Valley Politics Podcast, brought to you from the Student Media Center at California State University Stanislaus, home to The Signal, student-run newspaper, and 91.9 KCSS, the Valley's true alternative radio station. You can find both online at csusignal.com or kcss.net. And I'm Mariah Esparza, the student producer of Central Valley Politics. I'm an English major at Stan State, and I'm getting my journalism minor as well. I'm a student writer at The Signal, and I've been involved with KCSS for several semesters, and right now I'm one of the music directors. And I'm super excited to be working with Dr. Stevens and her political communication class to produce this podcast. At Stan State, Dr. Stevens is a communication studies professor, and every election season, she teaches a class in political communication, where she and her students study history and theory as a means of better understanding the rhetoric surrounding current political campaigns. This year, they decided to reach out to a larger audience to share what they've learned about the local candidates that we will all elect in November. And so, the Central Valley Politics Podcast was born. And this is a special edition episode. As many of you know, this election season has definitely turned out to be unique, especially the presidential election. In Dr. Stevens' political communication class, it's been a challenge to cover the discourse surrounding the race because it violates norms of political communication. In this podcast, our focus is usually the Central Valley, but the presidential election seemed worthy of discussion here at Central Valley Politics. Dr. Stevens has invited two other professors from the Stan State Communication Studies Department, as well as a professor from the San Francisco State Communication Studies Department, to join her for dinner and a conversation. Enjoy these communication scholars talking about gender, media, pedagogy, and politics over plates of eggplant parmesan. Dolphin clock over here. Oh, yeah? yeah? There's a dolphin clock. A dolphin clock? Wow. A whale clock. That's outrageous. Oh, yeah. I got that at a, I got that at a yard sale in Pennsylvania <laughs> when I was visiting. Um, it was a hoarder's... Well, it was actually really sad. The um, dad was a hoarder, and he died, and his kids were having to sell off housefuls of stuff, and he collected a ton of clocks. And that was one of the things that I got there. How about really that? Cool. Is that where you got the ty- typewriter? The typewriter yeah. that you've oh, seen, yes. yes. Right. And also my penny loafers nice. <laughs> that you've been Go seeing figure. this semester. So um, cool. I am recording the wine. Yes, the wine is imagery estates. It's important that we're supporting Northern California. What are we drinking now? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. Keith and my off. laughs are both going to be very loud. But... Thank God we have our engineer Kyle to fix it. Petite Sorrel's top Uh-oh. notch. It's splashing. I got a napkin though. Come here, bread. And for some reason, we have to share a butter knife per one per couple. Is that how it works? That's cool. Is that just a rule in your house? <laughs> no, not normally. In the past, you've had your own butter knife. But when I'm recording dinner conversation. <laughs> That's you don't want to see it carried away with <laughs> the dead right. knives. 
knives. That's right. During the dinner conversation. Not too many knives on the table. That's are, right. Yeah. That's it's right. probably wise. <laughs> I agree. I agree. All right. So um, I just want to say thank you all for coming to our fabulous Central Valley Politics Yay. podcast dinner, um, <laughs> where we're trying something completely weird and different. Um, and uh, <laughs> oh, I was giving you a piece of bread. You want a piece of bread? I don't know. Is she allowed to have bread? Uh, yeah, good, good. Mm. <laughs> Speaking of permissions. Um, so, uh, actually, I invited everybody here tonight. Uh, you guys know me, Shannon Stevens, your host. And, <laughs> and uh, I invited my friends here tonight to talk about the election. Initially, I had thought to just ask um, uh, Keith Nainby, who I'm going to have introduce himself here in a second. I'm and Keith Nainby. You are Keith Nainby. Excellent. And he's a, a comprof uh, in the same department I am at Stan State. It's it's true. It is true. <laughs> and I was going to have him come in to talk about, she teaches gender com, and I thought we could talk about the election. And I was like, hey, but I would also like to hear from his spouse, Amy Kilgard. Hello. <laughs> Hello, that's Amy. Uh, she works at SF State, uh, where she does really cool work on gender and performance and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, and then I was like, hey, what about my spouse, <laughs> Daniel Horvath, who also works at Stan State in the comm department. And I agree. All kinds of cool stuff. So Guilty. <laughs> It's true, you do. Um, anyway, so I thought we could just all get together over dinner here in Turlock. Yay for dinner. Yep. Yay. And that's what we're Yay doing. Yay for your delicious cooking. Yay. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, yeah, eggplant parmesan from our local uh, CSA, Rancho Piccolo. Yumbish. Yep. So everything here was grown in California, including our wine. How about hey, that? All right. <laughs> Yay. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. No, thank you. Thank you for being here. So... Um, we just finished watching Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> the last week's episode, um, which of course was all about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Um, and we saw the Michelle Obama speech on the things that are happening. We did. And one of the things I wanted to um, actually sit and talk to you guys about is um, what, it, what it feels like in multiple parts of our lives. Um, I'm teaching political communication, and so for me it's... Uh, a challenge every time I walk into that classroom this semester. Um, normally it's not. Normally it's fun. We go in and it doesn't, it doesn't matter who I'm planning to vote for because there's rhetoric that we talk about and we analyze and it's fun. Um, and this semester has just not been as fun, um, particularly with the, uh, the negative gender stuff that's been coming up. Um, I knew gender was going to be an issue, so I certainly assigned mm -hmm. lots of readings to help them unpack that, but it's um, an issue in a very aggressive way. So. I just wanted to hear from you guys if you're facing any of that ish stuff in your classrooms um, and also in your lives. I know that Daniel and I have talked about stuff, and, and we can talk about that next, but let's, let's yeah, converse. Ziggy <laughs> just put his snout right on my hand. Ziggy yeah, did. That's how he's yes. doing. Aww. Good job, boy. He's <laughs> he wants some he snacks. Ziggy's participating. He wants to console us. Mm -hmm. It's true. This should be a part of the podcast. <laughs> You're the consoling. That's actually true. He picks up on it when I'm mm -hmm. watching the debates and stuff. He picks up on the anxiety. I'm sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tugger always knows when we're anxious about anything. Yeah. Animals are awesome. Well, I think uh, I'd like to start just by saying that uh, we've been hearing this a lot, that this is a unique election, precisely in terms of the kind of communication, the kind of rhetoric that has been... Um, that we've been wit witnessing. And uh, in one particular case, I think they had to go back 200 years to find somebody challenging the 
institutions of democracy um, in ways that were sort of challenged in the last debate. So I think there's definitely something there that requires our attention as uh, well you as citizens, but also as communication mm -hmm. scholars. Mm -hmm. yeah. That makes sense. It's, it feels unreal to me, and it's felt unreal that the entire campaign has, has not felt like it is actually a thing that is really happening mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. And I don't know exactly what to make of that, except that the fact that it is real is, is certainly signaling some powerful things. I think, you know, there's a, a lot of different kinds of tipping points that are potentially being pointed to having to do with the confluence of, I think, big social movements like Black Lives Matter and, and all of the police violence, mm -hmm. as well as this moment of this sensationalist um, candidate who, you know, reality TV mogul who is, is treating the democratic process like a, like a reality TV show rather than like a serious thing. And, and so I don't know how those, how those two forces are colliding, but it feels like these, these two huge forces, so one where people, grassroots folks, are using social media and the, the powers of, of distributing information mm -hmm. for trying to make social change, and one for exploiting those same systems in a way for profit. Mm -hmm. A variety of ways, but I, I I don't I don't know. You're talking about the reality television connection. It doesn't feel incidental to me because a big part of my own experience of this election and political communication in it feels like life imitating art. Mm -hmm. So I do, I'm not going to get this source right, but it seems to me that I associated somehow with George Orwell the notion that. But I know there's actually another source for this, literarily, that if you tell a small lie, it will be caught. But if you want to tell a lie, then you can get away with it, just tell it big enough. Mm -hmm. And that seems relevant to me in terms of the contemporary mediated landscape because it feels like there's been art. I think, for instance, of, of Stephen King's Running Man that he wrote under the, under the pseudonym of Richard Bachman that they made into a film, mm -hmm. and other films like Running Man that have been sort of for most of my mature media watching life, have been framing a, a dystopian future in which there's no longer any credibility in anything anyone says in a public forum mm -hmm. because everything is degraded to the level of arbitrary opinion, arbitrary slander, arbitrary, you know, the idea that um, in, a, in a kind of reality television frame, truth doesn't matter all that matters is spectacle right. and those pieces of art have felt to me to be dystopian visions of a future that we didn't really live in and it feels like um, people have been singing a kind of slippery slope song about what happens to presidential elections or other kinds of election communication in a culture of sound bites in a culture of 
in certain ways, positive um, differentiated access to media knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Social media in a lot of ways replacing corporate media as a mm -hmm. place where people first get their information. And that's, that's felt like a lot of unnecessary worry to me. And the dystopian art, while educative, has always felt like dystopian art. And it's been quite strange, you mentioned Unreal over and over again, to feel like we're living in Running Man. We're living in a world in which the lie of social media opportunities to just d degrade discourse into arbitrary opinion and arbitrary um, pigeoning, pigeonholing of, of positions has really honestly reached the level where people can't even be held accountable at the basic level of what Michelle Obama called human decency. And I think that, I think we're, we're living in that. And it's a strange thing because it feels like life imitating art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I would add to that is that um, we, we've been hearing this, so it's it's not my idea in any meaningful way, but that we live in a age of instant outrage. Mm -hmm. That um, the the mistakes in a, in a sense are so visible and so fast uh, that we barely have time to sort of like. Um, react when when you would say something that is let's say inappropriate or offend somebody uh, and i think the example is i forgot somebody made an inappropriate joke went you know went on a plane in africa and by the time they landed i yeah. believe in uk uh they were already fired because uh -huh. twitter in the meantime in the eight hours mm -hmm. has been working overtime um but in a in a weird way this this has not been the effect, at least with this selection, because the frequency of the scandals uh, is dizzying to the point that before we can process one scandal, mm -hmm. the next one takes center stage. And, and of course, you can, if you dig, dig around, you'll see an archive of all those mistakes. But... Uh, we we don't we only get upset with each scandal. There's no there doesn't seem to be a sense of accumulating. Uh, I I don't know how to say it, but you know uh, outrage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that I think that builds on the reality TV concept, right? It's like each scandal is the latest episode, mm -hmm. um, and and the overall story arc is villain against establishment <laughs> in some strange way um and i think one of the, the the reality tv and also your your reference to stephen king and and running man to me is really interesting um for a couple of reasons one certainly the life imitating art is absolutely what this feels like it's just it's absolutely frightening um and there is a there's an article i think it was in the new york times or the washington post um, this was like a month ago. So this was when we were starting to feel the anxiety, but it certainly hadn't gotten to the peak that it had, to the point that it required Michelle Obama to address it, right, to the nation. Um, and that was that there, there's always apparently um, psychiatrists and psychologists always have a little bump at election time, it's, mm -hmm. and it's called election anxiety. Mm -hmm. And it's something that lots of people experience. Um, they get very concerned about the state of the country and of their lives. Um, but this election 
therapists, it's just off the charts. They're mm-hmm. having such a difficult time. And these are, and a lot of these are folks who don't have never experienced this right. before. Um, and that intense level of anxiety. And I've had my, I've had my students in my journalism classes referencing, um, 1984, cause that's their, mm-hmm. that's their commonality, right? Mm-hmm. It, it feels scary to them in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the apocalyptic rhetoric that is surrounding this in such a weird way, not from, not just from really like fringe conspiracy theory out there, folks who, you know, thought it was going to be the end of the world when Obama was elected. It was such a small, that was such a small voice. But we have so many people who are frightened. Um, I find myself thinking of the stand of all things, right? Where you have one person who's saying, I will save you and I will take us into the next world. Um, and we must destroy anyone who says the opposite. Mm-hmm. And, and on the other side, you have the lovely little old woman who's mm-hmm. like, no, we have to be a community and build a future together and believe in God. <laughs> like, <"Whoa." laughs> So it's so strange to have Stephen King in our daily lives in this weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that anxiety, I think for me, this past week, and it's been there all along. And I remember talking to you guys on the train coming out of San Francisco, and I asked you if you thought, and that was that one was when he, when Trump was saying something about, um, I think it was when he was insulting our black communities. I, it was just yet another, <laughs> yep, just yet another horrible thing that was devastating at that time. And that was a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. And I said, do you think that this is you know, we look back on the 60s and we can see that all that turmoil was a massive shift in our culture. And I remember asking you, is that what's happening? Is Do you think that what we're seeing is Black Lives Matter, is Occupy, is all of these movements? And also, it, and those are, you know, I would say farther to the left, but we also have this whole group in the middle that's like, you know, no, we want gay marriage. We believe that is right and moral. We want um, equal pay for equal work. We want our people to not be homeless and, and starving. So there's been these big sort of cultural shifts and, and a backlash to that. Um, so this has been an ongoing sort of tension for me, not only teaching in the class, but also personally. But I think this past week, my anxiety really spiked with, um, with the video clip of Trump. And I certainly agree that what he said was not surprising, really. I think we did all know that that's the sort of well, I don't want to say the sort of man he is because I'm not sure what he is other than an entertainer. But that that's right, the sort ethos, of ethos, right? It is his ethos. Yes, that's correct. Um, and certainly the sort of language that I would have expected him to use. And for me, that anxiety was so high. And I heard Michelle Obama referencing that in her speech in New Hampshire, um, and I saw other women referencing it online. But for me, it. Um, I was joking with you guys earlier that who knew I would need a trigger warning for political com, mm-hmm. um, and. It, whether you're for them or not, for me, it has triggered all sorts of terrible memories. Um, I came of age in the 80s and 90s. Um, I was in New York. So that sort of, that sort of um, violent, violent othering of women um, and not treating us as equals and treating us as bodies and um, my very first newspaper job ended because the boss people found out that the guy who was 25 years older than me was abusing me at, when I was 17. 
So I got fired, <laughs> right? You know, and that sort of that was my first job in '87, right? And then we go into the um, into the '90s, and I loved my work. Don't misunderstand, but it was a very aggressive place um, to be. Being a, a businesswoman in New York in the early '90s was rough. It was really rough. Um, and when Michelle talked about how awful it is to hear that spoken again right and to hear that being out in the discourse and to hear our children being exposed to that and I don't have children but I see my young female students who have not experienced that which gives me great joy they they haven't experienced that level of male aggression they, they've had catcalling I'm not saying and we still have issues of all kinds but um anyway so for me this the my anxiety really did hit a whole new level of awful this week um which made me want to sit down and talk to my friends about, um, about what that feels like. Um, and I know that, yeah, that's, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> that was a lot. I hadn't thought about the fact that uh, we lived in New York um, in 1995 and six, yeah. and six. And I worked in Trump Tower for a <laughs> minute. Um, <laughs> That's I, true. I had forgotten. I, I worked for a temp agency that was out of Trump Tower. And I, I, I didn't experience, thank goodness, Donald Trump coming up to me and, you know, sexually assaulting me. Right. Um, but that kind of ethos of the city at the time, that I, would, I would have been called a cow. I was, you know, I, I can imagine the, the kind of rhetoric that, that Trump and many others would have and did use about my body. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the kind of way that the, the temp agency was a very gendered space. It was very feminine, mm -hmm. right? So you didn't work there if you were a man. You worked there if you were a woman. Right. And then the jobs I got were very specifically gendered jobs. So mm -hmm. uh, phone receptionist at a firm, um, mm -hmm. data entry, where all of the temps who were women did this data entry. All of the temps who were men did this delivering of paper and stuff around the, around the place. Right. And I didn't understand that, but it was, it was still very present in that time. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about this at all until you started talking about that experience of living there. And um, I, I think the, the ways that that continues to be replicated, but now in ways that are, that are covered up or smoothed over or as if this so-called locker room talk doesn't continue in all kinds of places and all kinds of spaces in our in our contemporary world and maybe maybe our students don't have the same kind of gendered segregation workplaces um, but I know our students experience incredible sexual harassment ongoing in continual ways I have a graduate student right now who's doing a project about about uh, flirtation and the gendered language around flirtation and um, kind of complicating understandings of it, but her experiences of working in a, in the service industry and mm. being constantly, constantly, every day sexually harassed by men in mm. her workplace, people who work there and people who are customers. And that's I mean, terrible. that's 2016. 
And so I don't think in that California. in California, in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. where we assume that we are enlightened and in, and 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 beyond that and what have mm-hmm. you. And and I I just think it's ridiculous to make that to and not that you were saying it. it's ridiculous for no, us no, to no. to assume that 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 it's not happening and that if we if we condone if we you know do any of the things that Michelle Obama says in her in her speech. Uh, if we condone that kind of behavior, if we do not speak out against it, even if we don't vote for Hillary, we better be, you know, right now working on the on the anti uh, anti hate <laughs> speech around gender. Like it's mm-hmm. it's just it's it is affecting all of our lives now, and and we need it. We gotta change it. Mm-hmm. I I don't know how we do that completely, um, but I. I certainly don't think that one of our candidates will <laughs> promote that. Yeah. yeah, no, certainly not. And and thank you for talking about the experience of your students. Um, and you're absolutely right. Just because it's not as visible does not mean it's not there. It, it is absolutely there. Um, and in some ways, um, I suppose... Hey, there, there's a little bit of a positive glimmer there, and that this has brought that to the surface in ways that were very difficult for women to do on their own. I mean, the feminist literature that I read certainly talks about that stuff, um, and certainly I have had students come and talk to me about, well, how do I deal with it when they insist on holding the door for me, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, yeah, it's it's a smaller thing, but it's still a, a it's still a power play. Right, um, when you don't want that, or when they refer to the woman across the hall as, as go deliver this to that chick, right? Those sort of littler things, um, and of course the other things that we don't see, but that we get to read about in statistics and we get to read about in um, crime stories, um, which is the violent assault on women um, in enclosed spaces, which is, I don't know. One piece of what you're talking about that I connect to, you were mentioning the fact that I teach our common gender course. Mm-hmm. And thinking about raising the profile, one small positive being raising the profile of the urgency of uh, the, the persistent urgency of actively confronting sexism in daily life. In that course, I've redesigned it just this semester, specifically because it was my perception that the last several times I've taught it, students' treatment of issues especially especially in their papers and projects, but even in our class discussions, would often be very strongly anti-sexist and you know, following the beat of recognizing how we constitute gender in communication and how we reinscribe differentiation of gender in communication and the ways in which that feeds into patriarchy and also feeds into heteronormativity. They get all of that. But it's almost as if the culture we live in is a text to be analyzed, rather than something we live within. Mm. Uh, and, and it feels to me like I've made some changes this semester to try to encourage students to see the ways in which we are all actively engaged in these processes on a day-to-day basis together, and that it is something we live in and with and through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not those gendered people over there who we can study to find evidence of the male gaze in a film text or Mm -hmm. those gendered people over there so we can find evidence of body image issues in dove ads right Right. Uh, and so 
that that connects to me to our conversation today in that the trouble for me often is I struggle to not have this class be a woman's studies class. I try to bring in articles, research about masculinity, mm-hmm. put my own gendered body on the line in whatever ways I can in class, recognizing that that's a privilege, recognizing that I don't get called a feminazi because I'm there in class in a male body, right? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like it's important for me to put my own negotiation of masculinity on the line in the class. And one of the things about this election season that's especially interesting to me, troubling to me, but also interesting as a person who teaches that class, is the scholar who's most influenced me, who is Paulo Freire. One of the things that I find most powerful is the idea that systemic oppression demeans all human beings, not just most human beings at the expense of the wealthy, but Freire is very articulate about the ways in which oppression itself demeans all human beings, even those who oppress because mm-hmm. their lives are invested in oppression. Their, their mm-hmm. success and power and status is invested in oppression. And on the one hand, I think it's very easy to see that in Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But much more interestingly than anything to do with Donald Trump is one of the things I experience in this election cycle is something I often experience as a white person in a culture where African-American men are targeted by law enforcement, which is the way in which my body is also affected by that. So I'm, as Daniel loves to remind me by calling me boss or boss man <laughs> in, in a leadership role in our department right. where I have power over other people, where I get to hire people, not without rules and constraints, but effectively have a lot of unilateral decision-making and hiring processes. Mm-hmm. And most of the folks who work with us as temporary faculty contingently are women. And I'm very sensitive to the fact that in a discourse like the one that has been nationally raised in profile by so-called locker room talk, I become increasingly a threat, increasingly a, a, a frightening specter to a young woman whose employment is in part contingent on her relationship with me. And as a person in a male body, I'm not only angry, so much of the rhetoric has been, you know, to displace women into roles. And that's been called out appropriately on social media, right? That people should be worried about wives and daughters and sisters as if women are not also people. But there's a part of that that I also connect to in this way, which is I'm not only angry on behalf of the women I know who, who've taught me so much and who I care about and who are both in relationship to me according to those labels and are also people I share the world with. I'm not only angry about the sexist violence in our national culture that's spotlighted for them, I'm also angry for me because every word out of this idiot's mouth makes it harder for me to be a meaningful leader and a meaningful supporter to the young women who I'm contingently ensuring are employable in my department because I become a threat. I become someone who is in a male body within a sexist discourse that is underscored in profound ways by what we're reading about every day and my body is on the line there too and this makes it harder for me to meaningfully do those roles harder for me to meaningfully engage in those and i say all that recognizing my male privilege i'm not trying to suggest that i have it as bad i'm trying to suggest it hurts all of us it makes me a less effective teacher for women and men it makes me a less effective leader for colleagues who are both women and men 
every time that this kind of discourse is publicly expounded. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm thinking about. One of my concerns, I mean, what I'm trying to think about is uh, to go back to how you teach through these elections or this, this election, um, usually comes a lot easier to be, uh, to try to be impartial uh, with other elections. Uh, it, it seems to, to be increasingly difficult, especially as a communication scholar, not to point out to all the issues that, that have to have to do with um, with uh, with race with with uh, religion with 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 gender um, it's very difficult to sometimes uh, it's easier to just avoid I know that my first class after the debate uh, I uh, I said uh, I don't want to talk about the debate <laughs> It was too uh, depressing, uh, but beyond that, what I'm interested in is uh, what's the appeal? Uh, because uh, we've we've witnessed rhetoric, or what we call uh, the dog whistle rhetoric, that hides behind certain terms that disguises issues of. Uh, uh, racism or uh, Islamophobia or uh, sexism um, so we know uh, we know how to sort of detect all those issues behind wor the words but here is a discourse that no longer disguises itself mm -hmm. so it's it's almost I don't want to I, I don't want to say non-rhetorical but in a sense Right. It's if, an audible if, yes, whistle, right? Yes. No, that, if, yeah, it's an audible whistle. If, if rhetoric tends to disguise itself or disguise its own artifice, right, um, that precisely the, the person that uh, is suspected of being a good orator is also a suspect person, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, here you have a discourse that no longer uses any sort of artifice, just communicates directly. So I'm beyond the, the scandals that, that uh, worry worry us that uh, um, he's trying to explain right so uh, about the, the lewd comments uh, they're trying to explain and you see a, a, a diminishing circle around him that continuously defend uh, each subsequent uh, s scandal but there's still a, a contingent of people that do not disavow these these words do not uh, um, ask for for some sort of change uh, but th there are people that um, respond to this not to the lewd comments that's a, that's the scandal but to, to the, the the rest of the rhetoric that still uh, uses sure. uh, uses sort of uh, all these markers that mm -hmm. that we we consider uh, problematic yeah. and my, my 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 curiosity or what I'm trying to figure out is uh, why why do people respond to this uh, discourse and where did uh, let's say the left uh, forgot to um, forget forgot to speak to that, that lake off yes yeah, yeah forgot to speak uh, to the to, to the people that, that respond to that because uh, there, there's a there's a similarity right there there's a, uh, when when 
analyzing the kind of appeal that Bernie Sanders and Trump had, uh, they, they seem to suggest that there is some similarity there in terms of sure. the kind of energies that they activate, which means well, that that population can be activated differently. <laughs> so the idea that like you're grotesquely sexually violent in your public discourse which reinforces some folks' sense that you merely tell it like it is, mm-hmm. right? You, you must be uncloaked with the naked yeah. truth. You must be, he reinforces this sense that, that he's just a truth teller. Yeah. Well, and then, <clears throat> doesn't that connect with the anti-intellectualism that right, has been such right. a part of our uh, like public discourse for yeah. now quite a long time? Here we have somebody who's, mm-hmm. who's blatantly claiming mm-hmm. it and, and saying, yeah. Um, you should have suspicion of the, and maybe we all should have suspicion of the, of the establishment and all of those things. But, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, we should have suspicion of anyone who speaks about any of the issues. And, and so here we, you know, this is all happening in a week when there was a big military action in Yemen, Mm -hmm. right? That we all should be paying attention to that the military, the U S military engaged in a violent, you know, attack in mm-hmm. this this week. Mm-hmm. But what are we talking about? And I'm not saying we shouldn't be talking about yeah, the yeah. about about the lewd, you know, tape. But shouldn't we also be talking about you know what's happening in Syria? And so this one person who's saying he's Trump, who's saying he's speaking the plain truth, won't actually talk about anything mm-hmm. of substance at all. Right. Mm-hmm. And so how do we? How do like? How do we engage in any kind of public discourse? You know, how do we rhetorical or or blatant? Like I don't. It's a call to something that um, this ideal of public intellectualism, not public plainness. So-called Versus populism, populism, which will soon hopefully be demonstrated to not be populism at all, right. but so-called populism. Versus, I think there, there are lots of these really interesting grassroots-y things that are happening mm-hmm. where people are actually engaging in much more sophisticated discourse mm-hmm. about substantive issues in the country that are, you know, over here and over here and over here. Um, but on the mm-hmm. big stages... Anytime that kind of discourse is happening, it gets shut down as not not saying it like it is, or too you're too highfalutin, or you're too big for your britches, or you know mm-hmm. all of that anti intellectualism yeah. stuff. That's tough. I mean, the I'm I'm teaching free speech at the same time right now, and so I'm always talking about the the initial intent of the First Amendment, which was to have an educated public. Um, because the sovereignty is with the people, right? And so we need to understand everything that's happening to it. And I, I mean, obviously there were deep flaws with our early founding, um, but the idea was brilliant, right? The idea that we need to have access to unfettered information about our government, about our officials, about everyone, so that we can be the best king possible for ourselves is essentially the the, the crux of it. And I don't... In response to what you were both saying, like how how do we how do we speak to that? You know, in I in class I will have students say, well, this thing the media is not talking about this thing, and I'll say, well, how do you know about that thing, <laughs> right? And it's always because the media is actually reporting on it. Right. And um, yeah, the the stuff going on in Yemen, the fact that we are um, 
on the brink of no longer having a, a workable relationship with Russia. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Haiti has was barely getting itself together and has been devastated mm-hmm. again. We have flooding and deaths in our own country too. Like even if you're someone who doesn't care about outside the borders. All of North Carolina <laughs> is kind of out of commission right now. Absolutely, in, in terrifying ways. So, um, and all of that is there, right? That's all in the New York Times. That's all in uh, the Atlantic Journal Constitution. That's everywhere, right? Except that even on these high-end publications, you, I mean, it'll be in your briefing on the top, but you have to scan through five, mm-hmm. six, seven, eight stories about, about the Republicans and, jumping right. ship. Um, about the the latest <laughs> silliness from WikiLeaks, that all of these things are taking precedence and rising to the top, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> limiting our our discourse and pushing it away from pushing it more toward that reality TV. And that's even the very best the very best watchdogs that we have. Um, it ends up becoming this just screaming loud conversation that seems to drown out these is other that, things. A, is that different from previous elections? Well, do you, do you, as a news professional, do you do you see this as particularly dif- different from two thousand eight, two thousand four, two thousand? Yes, in that um, in a normal election cycle, the hurricane would have wiped the candidates off the top of the list, mm. right? And we still would have known what they were doing. Oh yeah, they're going to have a debate. Great, maybe we'll watch. Maybe we'll go to a movie. Who cares, right? I mean, these debates have had I agree with you have this. had the highest turnout ever. Um, but no, the things that are happening in other parts of the world in an ordinary cycle would wipe that stuff out. Now, not everywhere. MSNBC, CNN, the folks sure. who, who have to have a 24-hour news cycle and like to just chat, it's going to be different. But yeah, I do see this as different. But that's not to say that I don't think it is absolutely newsworthy. This is terrifying. We yeah. really do have this man running for president of our country. So it's just, but it's very, I don't know, it's very confusing time. But the, in terms of media itself, mm-hmm. It seems to me that there's an interesting thing here that relates to, oddly, an experience on the academic side, mm-hmm. which is, uh, as you all know, because we've talked about this, there's a movement afoot on, on our university campus at Stan State um, to try to identify more effectively courses students need to graduate and to encourage them to graduate on a more prompt timetable. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of pressure to put systems in place to make this happen. Mm-hmm. One of the systems that I actually like to make this happen is a tool called Smart Planner, where um, many CSUs, well, we're about the 10th CSU to use it. Many CSUs use it. It's a combination of, so so each degree program will be structured so that a a computerized system, this Smart Planner thing, Mm -hmm. can understand not only the general education requirements and associated requirements toward any baccalaureate degree program, but the specific requirements associated with a given major or minor. And a student can sit uh, and interface with the system, and she can plan out one semester, two semesters, three semesters, four semesters ahead, especially because we're being urged to give the system information about our course rotations that might happen every four semesters, et cetera, so that a student could not only say, here's a general roadmap where I'm going to take a comm elective in spring of 18, but more specifically, I'd like to take nonverbal communication in spring of 18. I'd like to take political communication in the fall of 18, right? That sort of thing. I think it's a great system. I think if you're going to put systems in place to encourage students to graduate more promptly, that's a good example of one that I think is effective and Mm student-centered. 
But Betsy asked a question about it at the meeting today because the provost was bragging about how, well, what's great about this is it'll enable us to make much more scientific arguments about scheduling instead of just guessing based on past experience and our rotation intentions with respect to how we should plan the next year's schedule, we'll be able to track students' actual demand. So that if a student knows she wants to take political comm in fall of 18, we'll know from students using the smart planner system how many students would like to take political comm in fall of 18, et cetera. And Betsy appropriately, I think, asked the question, but is it really a, a good use of our curricular expertise as faculty? She didn't phrase it this way, but this is what she was saying. Is it a good use of our faculty expertise in terms of curriculum development to base <laughs> our scheduling practices entirely or even largely on what student demand? <laughs> exactly. And I think that this goes, is that really educative, right? Even mm -hmm. if it's something as simple as looking at a catalog, I'm not sure that that's an educative approach, right, to scheduling. Similarly, I think that the kind of change you're describing in election coverage and even, even established organizations like the Times, the Post, is a social media logic that says what matters is hits. What matters is how New York Times can both designate itself as a meaningful, contextualizing, intellectually rigorous news source and yet also compete in a marketplace with CNN and MSNBC because that marketplace now is, is structured not around subscriptions for hard papers, not around store sales point distribution, but around social media hits and shares and retweets and things like this. And I think in that marketplace, regardless of the content of and editorial practices of an institution like the New York Times, there will be some distortion based on the desire to drive marketplace needs that are now the needs that reward the CNNs, the MSNBCs, the 24-hour news cycle approaches. Not to mention, of course, all of the slightly less corporate institutionalized outposts of social media. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, that's my perception, mm -hmm. is that it's, it's, it's no longer about what an institution stands for as a member of the fourth estate, it's what the marketplace will bear. Mm -hmm. Well, and also how much time we have. <laughs> Which right? is related, right? I yeah. mean, seriously, this, this election is taking up so much of our time because there's just mm -hmm. so much um, horrible stuff happening every single week, right? Sometimes every single day. Um, even if you don't cover his tweets Although, honestly, I think you do need to cover Trump's tweets. He is running for president, right? So what he's saying in a public forum matters wherever he says it. Um, but by the time by the time these organizations that have the money to have, you know, 25, 35 reporters covering the presidential race, um, but we as citizens, I mean, how can we do that? Right. I, I read hours of news every day just to try to keep up with this stuff. And I'm I'm privileged to be able to do that, right. right? I get paid in part to do that. I don't read hours of news a week. I mean, if you include my NPR listening, maybe close, but <laughs> well, I, I would include that <laughs> absolutely. Um, but yeah, again, I mean, I I get that privilege. That's yay, <laughs> awesome for me. <laughs> um, but how do you? I guess that comes back to that same question. Like, how do you combat all of those things? How do you combat mm -hmm. the anti-intellectualism? How do you reach out to um, to folks who don't want to hear the complicated argument that's in the, 
you know, 22 paragraph right. story from the New York Times right. instead of the quick hit. But that's the digital marketplace, right? It's not only a digital marketplace economically, it's a digital marketplace in terms of its terministic screen, right? Yeah. A 22 paragraph story no longer fits any existing terministic screen for media. Yeah, it's tough. Say. And I think, I mean, I think that's partly what makes it so tough. I, I'm often flummoxed when people will say, well, I, I don't, or when they do this um, classic, classic media bias of false equivalency, right? And they're like, oh, well, I don't like either candidate. Like, okay, except that you do understand you're comparing a reality TV star to someone who has almost 30 years of experience in public policy making and creating laws right. and serving as Secretary of State. And it's very, I never know what to say. But when we talk about it this way, I'm like, well, sure, who's going to sit around and read yet another really boring right. thing on the 200-page document that Hillary Clinton created to make sure that children would be, <laughs> right? right? I mean, it's a, it's a, strange, it's a strange aesthetic time. And, and I mean, the, you're, the thing about, oh, 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 like the fact that we can't not support her. That is, this is can't support Clinton in this election, even though we may not like her, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like some of the, some of the, I mean, Michelle Obama in her speech lays it out very directly, she right? Does. You can't, you can't not do this. And, and I think that's also a false, uh, in some ways, a, a, a false kind of scare tactic that's happening mm -hmm. there because it, it, it's trying to simplify something that's actually much more complex, yeah. mm -hmm. which is people have complicated feelings about, about all of the, all of the political landscape. And, and here we have these kinds of, you know, it's not just Trump who's a, who's a huge figure. Hillary Clinton is also a huge figure with a long, a mm -hmm. long, not just public career, but, but public presence. Right. And, and she has, she has made choices that are problematic on all kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. And how do we have the complicated conversations about her and her record um, when, when the alternative is so heinous that, you know, of course, of course we can't have that. Of course we can't have him be the president. But that's but, a really cartoonly simplistic world but, to live in. Yeah. But it's also like... I don't want the inevitable world where we have to have Hillary, Hillary Clinton, Clinton over and over again, yeah. over and over again. Yeah. Like I, I think we're in a moment where we have to make a choice this year, um, and the choice is obvious for me. In, in, in but isn't ways. it always that way, right? I but, mean, that's the thing. But I, I don't, I don't think it's as simple as as. Uh, uh, you know, as as we have to make this choice because we have to fight. You know fight all of the nastiness that, that Trump is doing because we need more complicated answers than that. We need more complicated answers in the country and we need more complicated conversations in the country. And now we have, you know, these scandals have made it such that we can't actually have those mm -hmm. complicated conversations mm -hmm. on and 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 we've had this problem on the left forever in this country yeah, because we true. always want to have more complicated conversations and the right is always about simplifying mm -hmm. simplify 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 and i want to have the complicated conversation that actually is trying to um negotiate through but i don't want the like the spike in the anxiety with the with the uh you know, psychoanalysts and psychologists and whomever, like I experience that anxiety now. Like I, because I, I, 
I can't stand, I've, I've never been a person, I, I've never, I don't watch political debates or speeches very often. I hate them. I hate, I hate all of that. I shouldn't say this as a communication studies professor, but it's true. <laughs> I've, I've always detested that. I don't, I don't enjoy the political arena. It's not my, my place. I enjoy the arts, want to be in the arts. The arts are also political. That is what I like, the way I like to engage in these kinds of uh, uh, spaces. But I can't get away from it during election cycles, and I can't get away from it for sure this year, nor should I. But it's because they feel like they're always simplifying, and I don't want the simplistic. I like I, the political rhetoric of a big speech is simplifying, no matter its brilliance, because it is there to try to persuade us right. of mm -hmm. one thing. Vote for me, right? Always, that is the that is the purpose. And um, instead, I want to say, you know, how are we going to grapple with the bigger questions and issues? And I, I mean, the certainty of all politicians is so problematic, right? Because, but they have to be because that's the only way to be electable. And so I don't. Now I just went on a rant. I don't yeah. like any of that. Whatever. No, but what I would agree, and what I would sort of bring him back to is uh, uh, his appeal that might tie back into what Keith, what you're talking about, the digital market. Uh, he's capturing attention precisely because he knows how to, to play this attention or, or this game in an attention economy. Um, uh, as a TV personality, uh, uh, right? He knows how to be uh, constantly there. I forget what I want to say anyway. No, it, there, well, you're right. There, there have been articles about um, me media acknowledging its own complicity in in the rise mm -hmm. of this type of discourse. Um, um, there, there are recorded conversation by uh, media executives that say uh, the Trump has been a boon for um, their sure. their bottom line. So uh, it's, well, and it's, SNL lampoons the fact that the Trump candidacy is a boon for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, right? so she has to actually complicatedly describe why she's a better candidate than Marco Rubio. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, seriously, she doesn't even have to try to explain why she's a better candidate than Donald Trump to all but a tiny fraction of the possible people who are swing voters. Sorry, yeah. that's what I was yeah. thinking. Yeah. No, no, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. And I think, to me too, what I was thinking about when you're talking about that is uh, that there's a great John Oliver skit where he talks about um, Hillary fighting the 100-year um, battle for women to take the presidency and as a video game. And, the, mm -hmm. of course, the very final battle is going to be the patriarchy embodied, mm -hmm. like in all of those terrible things. Um, <laughs> but, and, and, yeah, it's very funny but I don't want it to be about a villain. And I think that's right. part of what makes me so angry in yeah. this election. I don't want it to be a villain. Yeah. The last round, four years ago, I was actually very disappointed in the left when they were trying to make Mitt Romney into a villain because he's not a villain. Right. Are you kidding me? But right. some of the stuff that they were trying to make, oh, binders full of women. Well, yeah, he's phrased that poorly. But what he was saying is I'm trying to actively engage right. in hiring practices that include women, right? right? I mean, there were just so many little things. But I, I despise that this has become this um, evil villain that we must vanquish. Um, right. And so therefore, right. we only right. have this one person mm -hmm. that, I mean, 
we don't have to analyze her if we don't want to. Right. So that's the I do yeah. analyze her, and I have because I've been following her for so many years, and right. so I'm actually excited about her position. But I wish it weren't in this way. Yeah, I, I can understand that. So. And what's what's troubling about the the, the the kind of discourse is that demonizing the other, right? Um, it always takes um, special training to detect, right? As people that that analyze communication, so you have to trace that rhetoric behind uh, terms, behind behind different expressions. Here you have one candidate calling the other one the devil in front of eighty million. Right. right? Uh, you have a candidate threatening to jail one's political opponent. Right. Uh, you have a candidate that. Um, lays out the groundwork to suggest that in case um, he loses, it's been a rigged election all along. Right, sure. Uh, sort of cast, casting doubt about the legitimacy of sure. the election itself. So I think, it's, it's again, it's fascinating how, how uh, we don't seem to, we seem to be in a, in a state of constant consternation mm -hmm. um, that it's it's the shock is not so much of what he says that the, the fact that it's possible for for a candidate to say that I think that's so shocking that it sort of prevents us from 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 reacting properly I mean of course everybody says something about all those those items but yeah I, I'm always trying to 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 think back on why is this appealing? So, be, so beyond the, the scandals related to, to bad gender, gender communication, uh, what, what is happening with the population that allows this type of discourse to uh, be successful, right? Because we, we, we seem like it's, it's not, we seem to miss, we seem to miss something. Uh, and everybody on the Republican side missed that, and everybody on the Democratic side missed that, um, uh, because even on the left, uh, even on the right, um, they're trying to have some meaningful conversation, uh, trying to differentiate uh, uh, themselves from 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 the pack. Um, and I think Marco Rubio said it the best. I've been giving speeches for two weeks and nobody covered me. And as, as soon as I made a comment about Donald Trump's, the size of his hands and, and mm -hmm. the size of other things, that's when mm -hmm. I started to be part of the, the 24 hour news cycle. So of course there's, you know, the, the digital market, it's the, the complicity of, of the media because it, it's all of a sudden people pay attention to the news right. that they didn't pay attention, but also, what, what, what is happening with the population? Uh, we, we might call it the privileged population. There's something going on that uh, allows this type of discourse to be appealing. And we, I think on, uh, at least the, the campaign on, on, on the left doesn't seem to be directed there or doesn't seem to, to, be, uh, to be sensitive to why that is happening, right? So then we dismiss it and we say, well, it's people that are, you know, perhaps racially insensitive and so on, or people with privilege that are losing that privilege. But 
when we listen to somebody like Bernie Sanders or even Hillary Clinton talking about how the middle class has been stagnating for the last uh, you know, 10, 20 years, so there is something that, that is being lost. And um, you see this sort of like messianic figure that activates that kind of discourse by saying, I, I can save you. Uh, so I think I think we're we're not uh, on on the democratic side that they don't seem to to be fully aware of that sort of fear and loss. Hmm. Well, I um I have really 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 enjoyed this conversation, and my theory for what would save us is uh, dessert. Um, (laughs) but I think that we should have dessert off tape Um, so I would just like to thank all of you for being here so thank you thanks thanks Amy thanks Keith thanks Daniel Um, I'm Shannon Stevens and yeah yeah, this was really fun I enjoyed it so thanks for joining us for dinner Thanks so much for listening to this special edition episode of Central Valley Politics Podcast, brought to you from the Student Media Center at California State University, Stanislaus. Home to The Signal, student-run newspaper, and 91.9 KCSS, the Valley's true alternative radio station. You can find both online at csusignal.com or kcss.net. Special thanks to your host, Dr. Shannon Stevens, her spouse, Dr. Daniel Horvath, Dr. Keith Namby and Dr. Amy Kilgard for participating. Thanks always to our engineer, Kyle Rankin, and to Hilda Flores, who also has an awesome podcast called Ask the Reporter on our SoundCloud that you should definitely check out. Remember, if you have anything you would like Central Valley Politics to research and or discuss between now and November 8th, please tweet the signal at CSU Signal or Dr. Stevens at Shannon Stevens. You can also email us at stanstatepodcasts at gmail.com. And keep in mind, this podcast was recorded before the third presidential debate aired. So if you would like Central Valley Politics to comment on the third and final presidential debate, definitely let us know. Also, remember that here in California, you must register to vote no later than October 24th. And that is today. So if you haven't registered to vote yet, definitely go do that. And you can do that at registertovote.ca.gov. Every vote counts, so get out there and make a difference. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to check out the other Central Valley Politics episodes on SoundCloud or kcss.net. You can check back in soon for more updates from the team at Central Valley Politics. This is Mariah Esparza at Stan State, where we are doing our part to save the vote.